The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. confess there's a small problem today in the amount of text that I want to convey to you. My sermon is really based on the entire 10th chapter of Acts, which is a rather lengthy 48-verse chapter. It's a very important issue that we're facing here as Peter encounters a Roman man named Cornelius, and God teaches a very important lesson What I'm doing, though, is picking up the text beginning at verse 34. Now, that means I'm not reading the entire instructions in a vision to Cornelius and then to Peter and then how they come together. I will highlight that in my sermon, but I'm going to say to you that I will be happy for you to be scanning yourselves during the sermon, verses 1 through 33, just so you perhaps get a better grasp, but I hope I'll give you what you need to understand without my reading this entire chapter. I'm coming in where Peter has, has visited the house of this man Cornelius that God led him to come together with, and I want you to hear the short message he gave and what followed. Acts 10.34, Peter opened his mouth and said, "'Truly I understand that God shows no partiality.'" But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's holy word. I realize when I'm going to speak about a particular historical figure that we might have young people who don't know the name of this man. So for their benefit, there was a man in the early 20th century who came to be called Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was a government leader in India who became rather a folk hero, a man who led the people of India towards independence from Britain, which had ruled in a colonial way in India for a long time. There's a crucial incident in Gandhi's early life that's worth noting. He was educated in England to be a lawyer, and so in the years just about a hundred years ago now, right before World War I, Gandhi was in London at London's University College getting a law education. And while there, he tells in his writings how he had seriously studied Christianity, and that he was very attracted to Christianity, that he found in Jesus Christ in particular a very galvanizing, riveting person that he wanted to know more about. And he said, he said, I believe I was on the edge of converting from Hinduism to Christianity. And so Gandhi thought he ought to learn as much as he could, and he would go to some Christian churches in London. And he did. And he found a consistent experience at several of the churches he attended. As he would come and ask to be seated, ushers would look at him and see a dark-skinned man from India. And either he would be, as in a few cases, refused a seat or conducted to the farthest remote seat in the balcony. Now, I know all of you folks want those seats, the remote seats in the balcony, but Gandhi knew that he was experiencing racial prejudice. In his autobiography, he tells how this treatment was the primary cause of his abandoning all interest in Christianity. Think of that. We lost Mahatma Gandhi as an influence upon millions of people potentially for Christ because of ushers in church. Gandhi wrote, if Christians will also live by a caste system based on skin color, I assumed I might as well remain Hindu. I ask whether we Christians today truly embrace a gospel of salvation by God's grace through the cross of Jesus that is blinded to race, to ethnic origin, and to economic origins in which a person begins their life. I'm sure if I asked for raised hands, many of you would say that you also grew up singing in Sunday school, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. I hope that we as a church believe that song as adults, as mature Christians, and that we have an all-inclusive vision of God's worldwide church and his eternal kingdom of all kinds of people as our vision today in the year 2013. As we come to Acts 10, this is a landmark chapter in the book of Acts and in the whole New Testament. There are incidents here bringing together Simon Peter, the premier apostle, and Cornelius, the soldier, 
that are of great importance. You and I can't possibly appreciate the fact that this is six or seven years beyond the cross now in the development of the church. And I don't have a precise statistic, but I think I'd be on, on target if I said that at this point, six years after the cross, 99.5% of everyone who says Jesus is Lord is a Hebrew-born person. All the Christians, in other words, are of Jewish derivation. Christianity began as a sect or a subdivision within Judaism. And that's where they still are. You and I cannot possibly appreciate that fact of what existed there. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul, who of course began in his life as a very haughty Jewish man himself at the top level, you know, he could say, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul speaks in Ephesians 2.14 about what he called the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That wall stands until we get to Acts 10. It stands like the Berlin Wall used to stand in Germany until the day it crumbled and was torn down. Now, you remember Acts 1.8. I said to you that is the theme verse of Acts. What does it say? It says that the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus is going to be preached first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and you can stop and take stock a minute. It's gone that far. It's already been heard in Samaria. But what is left in the expansion plan of Acts 1.8? To the uttermost parts of the earth. And that certainly means to people who are not Hebrews in their birth. And yet God had to actually force a meeting between Simon, the premier apostle at this point, with a Gentile soldier named Cornelius in order to convince Simon, who would then convince the rest of the church, that Jesus actually died for Gentiles. That was a revolutionary truth that was not yet accepted. But once it was, the church was changed forever. Now we need to ask, here we are, a congregation of evangelical believers. We try to take God's Word seriously. We have a very strong missions program. We have a very strong interest in going to the nations with the gospel. And we would say, well, we must, we must be ones who take this seriously. But I want to ask you to examine your own heart and your own mind and soul today. Do we honestly look upon brother and sister believers from other nations and see them as our equals in Christ? Do we honestly look at them without fear and without some kind of a condescending attitude of, oh, well, after all, we're, we're the American Christians. We're kind of in charge of the world. Aren't Americans in charge of everything in the world? No, we're not, as a matter of fact. And I think we need to consider how God dealt with Peter on this subject and then bring it home to ourselves. First of all today, I give you this point. The wideness of God's mercy shatters ancient barriers. Acts 10 is a long chapter. I didn't read it all, and I told you, I give you permission even now to have your Bible open and and be scanning the first uh, 33 verses that I didn't read to remind yourself 
of the story. I'll trace it in, in high points here, but it would be good if you be sure you take it in yourself if you can't. What we have here is Cornelius, a centurion in the Roman army, a man apparently born in Italy, now stationed for duty for some time in Palestine. He's in Caesarea, the premier city, the Roman city on the coast where Rome built a man-made harbor. You can still see the outlines of that harbor today. Caesarea is a beautiful place. I remember spending a couple days there. And here is this centurion who's like a captain in our army in charge of a a considerable quotient of men. Cornelius is called a God-fearer. That makes him rather unique among Italian or Roman citizens. He's someone who has come to respect the religion of the Jews, the God of the Jews. He respects that there is one God. He has read the Hebrew Scriptures. He even gives alms and donates to the Jewish temple. Now, he's not a convert but he stands on the outskirts of Judaism respecting the one true God and praying to that one true God. Cornelius still needs Christ to be his Lord and Savior, but he's a good, moral man living up to the best spiritual light that he has. So here he is praying, and God gives him a vision of an angel who told him to go summon Simon Peter from Joppa, which is just south of him on the coast about a long day's walk. And he did it. All right, quick flash to Peter, particularly starting at about verse 9 in the, in the chapter. Peter's on a preaching tour. He'd been used by God. The end of chapter 9 tells of him working some wonderful miracles. A woman named Dorcas was brought back to life in the name of Jesus as Peter worked that healing, not by his power, but the power of God. Now Peter's visiting in this little city called Joppa at the house of a tanner. Both of those things are are worthy of comment. Joppa. Have you ever heard of Joppa, Bible trivia, in the Old Testament? Do you remember a man named Jonah? Do you remember Jonah's story? He was asked to go to Nineveh and preach to hated, barbaric, cruel people who had conquered the Jews. Take the gospel to Nineveh. Jonah said, I'm not doing it. And he went to Joppa to get a ship to go west as far as he could travel. In other words, Joppa was the takeoff point for a disobedient prophet who didn't want to give the truth of God to people who were not Hebrews. Joppa, which is called Jaffa today, by the way, is the town now where God's apostle is, and he receives the message, take my truth to a Roman soldier who's waiting to hear it. He's one day's walk up the coast. Take my truth. Is Simon going to pull a Jonah and say no? Thank God he didn't. And then a comment, too, on the fact that he's in the house of a tanner. Tanners were like butchers, but their main occupation was to take the hides from animals and tan them, prepare them for leather, and to sell the hides. This is not a nice, neat, clean occupation where Jewish occupations are concerned. In fact, there were even regulations that a tanner's house had to be a certain number of feet outside of town so as not to pollute everybody. Interesting. Simon, 
still an observant Jew, is staying in this house. And many commentators will say there must have been some scenes kind of in his mind. He'd seen the yard there where, where animals were brought and where his host butchered these animals and, and took off their hides. And here it is, the middle of the day, he's hungry, and he has a vision, we're told here, of all kinds of animals in a, a sheet let down from heaven. Good Animals with cloven hooves like the Israelites are allowed to eat. Other animals, they're not. It says crawling things. You know, if a lobster came crawling out of there, it would have been the first lobster Peter ever had any contact with. They were not to eat that. Perhaps birds, carrion birds, owls or vultures or so, who knows what was there. Animals that the Jews were forbidden by the Old Testament to eat. And Simon had this vision, and in the vision he was told, kill and eat. And he said, oh no, not me. I observe all the food laws. I wouldn't do that. And what was he told? Look here. He's told to not regard as unclean or common what God has made clean. Now, I don't have time to comment on Old Testament food laws very much, but they were given by God. They were legitimate. It was something the Old Testament established in places like Leviticus for a reason, to help set Israel apart from immoral nations that did many immoral things. God wanted to kind of build a fence or put a distance between his people and the Canaanite nations. He didn't want them to intermarry with them or be assimilated by them, and food was one of the areas without going into all the particulars. They were to only eat particular things. So Peter was obeying the Old Testament. But here's the problem. A human attitude built up around that that God never intended in which the Israelites said, oh, goodness, we are scrupulous. We follow God's rules in every little particular. We eat the right things. We keep kosher. And those Gentiles who don't do that, why, they are just dogs. That's what Gentiles were called, dogs. They don't understand how to obey God's law. We're not like them. And there grew this arrogance, this superiority, that they wouldn't even have contact with a Gentile. They wouldn't, you know, Peter, in going in Cornelius' house, was technically disobeying a practice of the rabbis by putting himself in the house of a Gentile. But God gave Cornelius a vision and Peter a vision, and condensing a lot of text here, brought the two of them together so that as Peter walked in the house of Cornelius in Caesarea. It dawned on him. It must have been like a thunderbolt. God wasn't talking about food. He's talking about people. He's showing me that I cannot regard any person as common or unclean or outside the embrace of his saving grace, potentially. And he comes to this great conclusion in 1034, which is why I began reading there, because that is really the the great stroke of truth in this whole text, verse 34. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, that's a synonym for believing in him, according to Christ and the gospel, is acceptable to him. In other words, faith in Jesus Christ is for everybody. It's for everybody. It's not just for Hebrews. 
There's a wideness of God's mercy that shatters those ancient barriers. And so quickly, we hear Peter then preach a sermon. And my second point, very quickly, I want you to see this summarized sermon that flows from verses 34 to 43. There are a lot of sermons in Acts. They're usually short. They're compact. I'm sure that the apostles preached as long as I do, even longer, I would guess to say. But what we have are condensed versions of their sermons, and that's what we have here. The very first sermon preached about the gospel of Jesus to non-Jews, a summary of the gospel that is without partiality. I'm just going to bring out four quick points that are in this. First of all, verses 36 to 38. Peter emphasizes that this gospel for Gentiles without partiality is about Jesus. Jesus, a man who is Lord of all, who in history was inhabited by the Holy Spirit in a great way without limit. God was with him, it says in verse 38, as with no other person. All right? It's about this great and unique man. Secondly, verse 39 says more than that. It's not just about Jesus and his life. It's about his death. This man was put to death by hanging him on a tree. In other words, there was an execution. And we find out in places like Acts 3.23 or uh, 2.23, I'm sorry, and other places that that was an execution that was according to even God's plan because he was becoming a curse for us, taking our sin. Thirdly, it's about the resurrection. Verse 40, God raised him from the dead is another particular of this sermon. And he's saying... You know, not even everybody can, can be witness to that. Not everybody saw it, but he said God chose some of us to even eat and drink with him and know that he was truly alive, truly risen. We're not just talking about a remembrance of this man or a great memory or something. He was and is alive. And then fourthly, the great statement in verse 42, that Jesus is appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. He has a role now. Not just something in the past. In fact, the climax of this role is still coming in the future. He is going to be the one who has to be answered to. Where do you stand in relation to the holiness of God and your sins? He's the one who's going to judge you. You are going to answer to him. Will you bow before him? Will you call him your Lord first and accept what he did for your sins to forgive you? Or will you face him in the terror and the awe of your shame and your helplessness one day with nothing to remove your debt of sin. Peter concludes there in verse 43 that everyone who receives him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone. It cost Peter his whole lifetime up to this moment to say that. Everyone who receives him. That's a brand new revelation. And in confirmation of it, the Holy Spirit brought signs upon these people, tongue speaking and other things, that caused Peter to say here, why the same Holy Spirit? Why Gentiles have the Holy Spirit? Why would we not baptize them and receive them as brother Christians? Why not indeed? Well, this is a revolutionary event, folks, in the whole history of the first century church. 
And if it was nothing but that, it would be worth my mentioning it to you. Just as a, a historical pillar in the development of the Christian church in the New Testament. But let me tell you, I think there is very strong application in a living way to every one of us in this text today. How is this wideness of God's mercy to be realized by us in the kingdom of Jesus Christ today? Before my father was converted to Christ at the age of 39, I, I remember he was a Boy Scout leader. Uh, morality and, and good citizenship and those things were very important to him. And I remember him telling me very explicitly, we would ride in the car someplace and some subject would come up and dad would say, Michael, I want you to grow up to be somebody who respects people regardless of the color of their skin or their nationality or anything else about them. And he told me those things more than once. You know, it's good that my dad emphasized that because I didn't grow up in a situation where racial diversity would have naturally given me those lessons. In fact, I think back to my time in high school and I, I almost, I'm almost amazed at how I grew up in a, in a place, a suburb of America, another state. It would be a very similar place to Mannheim Township in many ways. And I went to a high school that had 1,300 students And I am distinctly aware that I don't think at any time in my years in that high school there was more than one African-American student. One girl who I personally knew and and liked as a friend was African-American. I don't remember any Hispanics or Latinos. There may have been some. There were some exchange students from other countries. There was about a 5% Jewish population. But I dwelt in a basically 95% Caucasian, American, Roman Catholic, and Protestant ghetto. (laughs) You wouldn't have called it a ghetto if you had driven through it and seen the homes. But that's what it was. Everybody was white. Everybody was Christian, you know, in some generic way. And until I was old enough to know better, maybe I would have assumed that my school population represented the face of America. I thank God that it doesn't represent the America my grandchildren are growing up in. I thank God for the ethnic diversity of my grandchildren's friends. And as you all well know, this is changing more and more and more all the time. And it certainly did not represent the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ on an international basis. And these things are changing rapidly today. I want to just run a couple facts by you. I know what time it is, so I'm keeping my eye on the clock. A couple facts to remind you of our changing world and the changing face of the church. Europe, you know, was the cradle of the Reformation. We've been talking about the Reformation in our Sunday school. Luther... Calvin, all these great leaders, Europeans, right? And that's where Reformed faith and evangelical faith that we look back to flourished and and came into being. Let me tell you something. This is a fact you need to digest. Take all the Christians who worship Christ in, in some genuine way in all the countries of Europe, not one, all of them, this morning, There are more evangelical Christians worshiping Christ in China than there are in all the countries of Europe. And that has happened within our lifetime. 
That is an amazing change to digest. Let me take another little facet of it to put before you. Many of you may have friends in the Anglican or Episcopal Church. In the United States, you know the Episcopal Church has gone through terrible doctrinal struggles and the left wing of of doctrine and social policy by far dominates that church. There certainly are good exceptions, but not a lot. And the the conservative Anglican Episcopal churches are saying, where can we even find bishops to whose leadership we can submit, who even believe the Bible or, or practice anything that's close to the Bible? And these churches have pulled out of the Episcopal church in the United States. Do you know where they have found bishops to submit to who are biblical, orthodox, evangelical men? Nigeria, the biggest Anglican country in the entire world. It has 15 or 20 million Episcopal people with churches mushrooming. Think of that. American Episcopal churches have to go to what was the mission field to find bishops who believe the Bible. Fantastic. What a witness to the glory of God in a changing church and a changing world. One more. We Presbyterians derive our government, our tradition, from, largely from Scotland, where Knox and the Westminster Confession shaped the heritage and belief of people there. You could go to Scotland in the 1800s, in the late 1700s, and you would find evangelical churches in every little town. You would find Reformed ministers everywhere. Some of the greatest revivals of all of history happened in the country of Scotland, where people were just alive to Christ and the gospel shaped and and controlled the country. Well, many of you have been to Scotland today, and, and it's a beautiful place, and you can still worship Christ in some churches in Scotland, that's for sure. But by and large, you will find the Church of Scotland absolutely moribund today and racked by all the liberal problems that we see in our mainline churches. Do you know where you might go in this world to find Presbyterian churches that have anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000, I believe there's more than one example of 100,000 member congregations in this country, people loving Christ, witnessing, coming to the Lord, coming to prayer meetings at 5 o'clock in the morning so they can plead at the throne of God together in small groups before they go to work. What country is that? Korea. God is doing amazing things, folks. We cannot assume that some country is God's favorite. God has no favorites where countries are concerned. The main meaning of the word Israel today is not a nation of people born of Jewish heritage. It is, in the Bible's understanding, the Israel of God to which we all belong in Jesus Christ. We who are Caucasian Americans, that's not even everybody in this room, but we who are need to hear the message, God has no favorites. We're not in charge of his kingdom. He is. And wherever there is prejudice or arrogance or pride where one believer in Christ looks upon another and says, that person's below me somehow, those people need to hear this message. God has no favorites. 
It took Peter a long time to understand that. But there is no racial superiority in the kingdom of Christ, and anyone who says otherwise is preaching an abomination against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look sometimes on other people in the kingdom, other Christians who worship differently, and we say, well, uh, okay, I, I can admit they're Christians, but they're not my type. What is your type? Listen, your type, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a genotype, a DNA, if you will, beneath the color of your skin that is the image of God in Jesus Christ. And you're being remade into that image, and the exterior package has nothing to do with it. The Scripture says, in the final kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth, we are going to bear the likeness of Christ. Do you know what color Christ's skin was? I don't. But it wasn't this color. It wasn't. We're going to bear the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we bear that likeness coming from the different nations we come from, the different skin colors we bear, the different ethnic backgrounds we originated in, let me tell you what's going to dominate for all eternity. The likeness, not the difference. The difference will not even be seen. And no one will be concerned about it for one moment in the great eternity of God's people remade in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, the God of all nations. Our Father, you had to hit Peter over the head to teach him this. And there are probably people among us who still need to really learn this lesson. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Our God, thank you for this vision of the church remade from national pride and division into unity and oneness and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Change our minds and lead us to an understanding of this great truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.